Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. If you're in the three and four-year-olds class, thank you for worshiping with us, but you guys are dismissed to your class. Mark chapter 11 is where we will be this morning. If it's your first time here at St. Rose Community Church, um, first of all, we just want to welcome you. We're so glad that you are joining us here. And, uh, but, I, but I also want to say that you come in this morning on Easter, uh, and what you're experiencing here on Easter is not something new to our congregation. I mean, we, we are doing this morning what we do every week. I mean, historically, the Lord... Uh, the Lord's Day has been what Christians have called Sundays, the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. And so what we do this morning in celebrating that Jesus is alive is actually what we do every single week in this place. Every Sunday we, we gather to celebrate a resurrected Jesus, an alive Jesus, an active Jesus, a Jesus who has spoken in history, and who is speaking today. So we're going to continue to do what we do every week, which is take the next passage in the particular Bible book that we are studying together in the Gospel of Mark. Every week we read uh, a certain number of verses, and we seek to understand what God has said there, and we seek to apply it to our lives. In fact, we've been journeying through this book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark, since last Easter. So we started Mark last Easter with a sermon on Mark 1, verse 1. This is what we looked at on Easter one year ago. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 reads this. The beginning of the gospel, which just means good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in that opening verse, we're told who the main character of this story is and what it is we aim to learn about him. This book is about Jesus. It was written that we might know why Jesus came, who Jesus is, and why Jesus matters to us. It was written that we might know that he's the Christ, the one to fulfill all God's promises, the King of kings. It was written that we might know that he's not just a good teacher, He's not just a miracle worker or historical figure, but he's the divine son of God, Lord of all, and savior of all who would believe in this room. God in human flesh who came to die a sinner's death and raise again on the third day. That's the story we tell every week. And we've seen in the Gospel of Mark so far, Jesus exert his authority and prove his identity by what he does. We've seen him wield authority over what truth is and what truth is not. We've seen him wield his authority over demons and diseases and weather patterns, waves of the sea, the metaphysical world. We've seen him feed thousands of people with miracle bread from heaven. He has revealed himself on a mountain to be the shining glory of the presence of God. And most recently in the story, Jesus has acted in a way, in Mark chapter 11, where he exerted his authority 
over the very temple of God. The religious structure instituted by God himself in the earliest history of the Old Testament. And so we turn again this morning to Mark chapter 11, verse 15. We're going to read the story that we studied last week. And then we're going to transition into the paragraph that we're going to study this week. So direct your attention with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 12. And we're going to read and pray for God to help us understand. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him and because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching and when evening came they went out of the city and as they passed by in the morning they saw the fig tree that he had cursed earlier and it was withered away to its roots and and Peter remembered and said to him rabbi look the fig tree that you cursed has withered And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours and wherever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would work miracles in this room by the word read aloud and explained, God. God, I pray that people in this room who do not know God would know God by the end of this time together this morning. God, I pray for those that have been distracted, have been focusing on so many things other than God. I pray that their, their eyes would be fixed on the glory and the power of the God of the universe. Lord, we come to a text this morning that has been, quite frankly, just abused and neglected and wielded to say whatever uh, sinners want it to say. And so, God, we pray that you would please help us to understand it. Not just to reject its misinterpretations, but to embrace what it does say, God. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to hear and believe these words from Jesus this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we talked about Jesus's frustration when he entered into the temple of God in Jerusalem. We asked the question, why was Jesus so angry when he entered into this place 
of worship. We learned that the temple was designed by God in the Old Testament to be the place where you could draw near to God. It was to be a place of prayer, a place where God's glory was seen and experienced through the whole worship system God had put into place. But when Jesus entered the temple, that's not what he experienced. Rather, Jesus entered into the place where God was to be worshipped, and he found God being ignored in the name of religion. He saw religious people exploiting the poor and the needy, religious leaders heavily taxing people and selling at high, pre- high prices animals for sacrifice in the temple. He entered into the temple of God, and worship was happening, but it wasn't worship of the one true God. It was worship of man of money, of comfort, of convenience. And though all things were being done in the name of the one true God, God was not the object of worship in that place. And Jesus was outraged. So much so that for the first time in the gospel, we see a physical response from Jesus. We see Jesus flipping tables and pouring out the money being exchanged and driving out the animals being Sold And Jesus, through his actions, declared divine judgment over the temple, where God's name was on the people's lips, but not in their hearts. And as God often does, Jesus symbolizes <clears throat> that coming judgment with a physical sign that the disciples would remember. He passes by a fig tree that looks like it should bear fruit. And when Jesus finds it fruitless, he rebukes that tree. And then the next day it was discovered that that tree withered away down to nothing, to the roots. The word of Jesus' lips destroy the tree. And and it's a symbol that we find in the Gospel of Mark for Jesus' authority to both pronounce judgment on the fruitless hypocrisy of the temple, but also to accomplish it by the power of just a word spoken. Jesus was going to bring an end to the religious pretenders in Jerusalem. The ones that dressed up and gathered together not to meet with God, but for many other reasons. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus makes it clear, Mark 13, 1, as they come out of the temple, one of his disciples says to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And we talked about the magnitude of the temple last week being 35 acres in land area. And verse 2, Jesus says to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The fig tree was a picture of power and authority that Jesus had to destroy even the largest, most important religious structure in the world. The fruitless fig withered like the fruitless religious would wither. Jesus has the authority to build up and he has the authority to tear down. And now with that as the backdrop, you, you have to understand the backdrop to get now the conversation that happens in front of the fig tree. We turn our attention this morning to some object lessons that Jesus wants his disciples to walk away with. They've just witnessed the corruption of the temple, the frustration of Jesus by this, by this misplaced worship, and they've witnessed the power and authority of Jesus in the fig tree symbol, and, and Jesus' disciples are amazed with the little miracle, right? Right? 
that's so cool, Jesus. You just killed that tree. Like, that's amazing. They'd be amazed again with my garden. I kill trees all the time with the word of my mouth. It's amazing. <laughs> they're, they're blown away by the miracle power of Jesus and, and, and specifically the symbol or the sign or the act of this little moment. And then Jesus, without skipping a beat, the response to their amazement is, is verse 22. It's a command. Verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. It's a, it's a correction to disciples that are easily distracted and amazed by this little miracle. If you're keeping notes this morning, this is the first truth that I want you to, to see in the text Truth number one, God is the focus of our faith. Now this this was one of the failures of the Jewish temple. What was once constructed to be a place where people drew near to God to praise and trust and, and, and pray to him over time lost its focus on the whole reason for the structure in the first place. You remember that what Jesus had said the whole purpose of the temple was in verse 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer. For all the nations. But over time it had turned into something else entirely. And in the end would be destroyed. Religious activity in the temple simply became a means. To an end. Other than God. And now as Jesus' disciples are amazed at the little miracle. Jesus refocuses their attention. Believe in God. Have faith in God. He's the reason behind the temple. He's the reason behind the miracle. Signs and miracles are not the point. They point to the point. And the point is God. (laughs) In all of his glory. Is able to do as he pleases. All All our believing. All our hoping. All our trusting is in God. Not the act that impressed, but the God behind the act. God is. He exists this morning, whether you want to believe in him or not. God has spoken, whether you want to hear what he says or not. He's trustworthy, whether you trust him or not. His relevance, his existence is not contingent upon whether you are impressed or whether you give him the recognition he's due, I wonder how many of us this morning need a refocusing on the self-existent, glorious, powerful God of the universe that this whole worship service is structured to point to. Why did you come to church this morning? Why do you ever go to church? Did you come with an awareness That there really is a God of the universe who put together this moment by his grace for you to enjoy his glory now and forever. When we've prayed this morning, was there an awareness that there's a God in heaven who hears your prayers? When we sang this morning, was there an awareness that there's a very alive and very active, a very real Jesus who hears the praises of his people and enjoys them and is pleased in them? When we've read the Bible this morning, is there an awareness that God inspired this book for your ears to hear and your heart to be changed? Was there a reverence or are you already falling asleep? Because this is not as entertaining 
as the movies you watched this week. In the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus again and again celebrate and reward people who have faith in the very real existence, ability, and activity of God through Jesus in their lives, in the here and now, and the forevermore. Without belief and faith in this God, you miss the blessings of this God. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' actions in the temple, amazed at the miracle, but it's almost as if Jesus says, you're far too easily amazed. Redirect your attention to a God who can do absolutely anything he desires. In verse 23, Jesus then urges his disciples to pray and believe and live as if this God can do whatever he wants. Mark eleven twenty three 23 says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Truth number two, we believe, as Christians, we believe in a mountain-moving God. Right? The, the point of the text is clear. The point is the unlimited nature of God's power and our need to believe in that power. But what's amazing about this verse in particular is how many people ignore God and his word in order to apply this verse however they want. (laughs) What's amazing about this verse is the faith healer and the prosperity gospel teacher who takes this verse to do the very thing the religious leaders were doing in the temple. (laughs) To exploit people for their own selfish ambition and gain. They take this verse in the context of Jesus' destruction on that behavior, and they wield it to say, have enough faith and give money to me, and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy forever. And they do the very thing Jesus has just pronounced judgment over with this text. Because you cannot read one verse in the Bible without the backdrop of the whole Bible or without the backdrop of even the Gospel of Mark. Many have taken this verse and thought it to mean that that our faith is where the power is to accomplish whatever our sinful heart desires. They've interpreted it to mean that we can make God do whatever we want so long as we believe enough. From this verse read in isolation comes the whole concept of name it, and claim it, and you will be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But that interpretation does not flow from a reading of the rest of Mark. Faith that Jesus refers to here in this gospel has has not been a wholehearted belief that you know what's best for you, and you just have to convince God to jump on board. That hasn't been the picture of Jesus we've seen. Faith that moves mountains in the book of Mark thus far has been a faith that God is worth not giving us whatever we want, but giving up whatever we want for. <laughs> I mean, we have to read Mark eleven twenty three against what we've learned Jesus said about following him. I mean, Jesus said, follow, by following me, you're going to have to deny yourself. To pick up a cross and follow after me. To potentially even lose relationships, homes, possessions, or even physical life. All the suffering and difficulty. If it could just be avoided by strong faith, then the first half of the Gospel of Mark just doesn't make sense. 
faith that moves mountains, therefore, must have a nuance to it from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, which is faith that moves mountains, therefore, must be praying for God to move the mountains that God desires to move. Prayer aligns our will with the will of God. I don't, there are mountains I want God to move because I'm not the wisest being in the universe, but in reality, it would be better that he not move them. There's relationships that I'm glad God ended against my prayers in high school, right? (laughs) Praise the Lord (laughs) that my faith wasn't strong enough to woo God (laughs) in many moments of my life. Just think about this. Jesus is teaching his disciples to have faith. This language used to, to emphasize your faith in God. If you emphasize your faith, you're emphasizing the wrong thing. The emphasis is the God behind the faith. The, the power lies within the God we believe in. None of the disciples ever moved a mountain for the fun of it. I mean, I'm thinking, if that's how I'm to interpret this, man, I'd rearrange the landscape around Jerusalem. None of the twelve became wealthy except for one who betrayed Jesus and hung himself because of it. The disciples, rather in true faith, gave their lives as martyrs because Christ is worth it. In God, through them, God created the church and thousands went from death to life. Jesus is making a point here that the power is not in us. The power is not in our faith. The power is in the God we believe in. And Jesus' teaching on faith that moves mountains comes from the context of Jesus' teaching on what mountains we should want moved and what mountains God wants moved. The greatest mountain to be moved in the world was not the Mount of Olives that Jesus may have gestured to in this analogy, but the greatest mountain to be moved were the hearts of the ones he was speaking to. I mean, how can we become the kinds of people who will deny ourselves and follow Jesus? Who have to, how will we become the kinds of people who believe what he says and trust his promises and pick up a cross and follow him? How can hearts be changed? Because God moves mountains, <laughs> particularly the mountains of your sin and shame and guilt that separates you from a holy God. Don't read Mark eleven twenty three and misapply it like the prosperity preachers do, but don't read Mark eleven twenty three and then refuse to apply it at all. I mean, we, we do, as Christians, believe in a mountain-moving God. Let me, let me ask you a question. Do you live your life, Christian, with a kind of holy optimism? Do you believe that God Almighty can do anything at any time? Do you believe that... That it would be within his will that God could throw a mountain into the sea if he pleased. Do you believe he has no limit to his power? This is the God to whom we pray. And he is determined that our prayers be meaningful and powerful. Which leads to truth number three. God designed prayer to be our access to his power. Mark eleven twenty four. therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Now again, Christian Jesus doesn't intend to provide you with a formula for controlling God. You cannot ask God 
for sin that's against his will and expect to move him. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in this way, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, we have Jesus's prayer before he took the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. And we see both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. But in this moment, we see Jesus wrestling with the fullness of the suffering he's about to experience in Mark chapter 4, verse 36. Listen to what Jesus says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You hear the, the model of this prayer? <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Remove this cup from me. What was the cup? but the full wrath of God he was about to experience on the cross. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Even Jesus, overwhelmed by the wrath he was about to experience, asked the Father for something, and the answer was no. Because the point was to be made, for us reading it now, 2,000 years ago, there was no other way. The cross was the only way for sinners to be saved. It's clear from Scripture that prayer is not like a spell or a magic trip used to coerce God to do whatever we want, but there is, but there is a positive aspect to the teaching that we can't deny. God has ordained that your prayers be heard by God. God has sovereignly ordained that the way you access His divine power and in and through your life is through prayer. So prayer does matter, church family. Prayer is powerful. God designed prayer that you could commune with God and express to him what you hope and what you desire and ask that his desires become your desires and yours desires become his desires so that when, we, when, when God acts on our behalf, we know who did it because we've been pleading with him to do it. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. When we pray, we don't boast in the strength of our prayers. We confess our weakness and inability through prayer. When we pray, it is a declaration of dependence on the Lord. I can't do it, but you can, O oh Lord. I entrust myself to you. If you pause to think about it, it's through faith expressed in prayer that a person is eternally saved. So we, I mean, we, we believe at this church, if you, want, if you want your sins forgiven, I don't care how high the mountain of them is, you want your sins forgiven, you want a miracle of, of being adopted by God the Father and made one of his children, how do you, what do you do? It's not a 10-step process. You don't come confess to me. I don't have to do anything. You you need to pray to God and ask him to help you believe Jesus died for you and rose again that you might not have to take the penalty of sin. Jesus came to die on a cross and all we're meant to is believe. Well, how is the belief expressed? Praise to God. <laughs> I mean, if you're sitting here and going, I want eternal life. I want what you're singing about. You should pray. And ask God to forgive you of sins and ask God to help you to believe and have saving faith in Jesus. That, my brothers and sisters, is the biggest mountain to move. The mountain of your sin debt against a holy God that Jesus took on himself. 
why is Jesus getting into this whole prayer thing right here in this story? Well, Mark eleven seventeen. remember, it's, it's prayer to God that they were missing altogether in the temple. In Mark eleven seventeen. my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robber. The temple had become so many things other than a place where people relied on God. So what about you? What about your life, right? What about your prayer life? Re- what does your prayer life reveal about the one you trust in? What does your prayer life reveal about the priorities in your life? Hear Jesus' words to you this morning. God's power is freely given to prayers. But not just any prayers. Jesus goes on to make the point that that there's a way to pray that's genuine and there's a way to pray that's not. When we see this emphasized on the Sermon on the Mount where he rags on the hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing in the temple to be heard and saying many words. There's a way to pray that's genuine and there's a way to pray that's not. And Mark chapter 11 verse 25, it seems... That Jesus offers correction on hypocritical prayers. Verse 25 says this. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so your Father also who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Truth number four, final truth this morning is powerful prayer is genuine prayer. What a silly thing it is to come to God praying for his will to be done in our lives, pleading with him for clarity in our big life decisions, asking him to act in miraculous ways, all the while ignoring what he has very obviously said. The example Jesus uses here is the call to forgive. Can you imagine standing to pray to God for forgiveness? You've sinned against a holy God, a righteous God. You've sinned against your creator, and then you come to him asking him to forgive you. Can you imagine pleading with him forgiveness all the while you're a sinner who refuses to forgive someone else in your life who sinned against you? Matthew 18 tells a parable of exactly this. Tells a parable of a master who forgives the depths of his servant only to find his servant refusing to forgive the depths of someone else. Matthew 18, verse 32, the master summons him and says to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? It is difficult to pray according to God's will when you're actively and knowingly contradicting his word. (laughs) Let's listen to the voice of God just as much as we desire to have the ear of God. See, when we do that, church family, when we do that, when we both revere his voice in his word and have his ear in our prayers, we're living in the sweet spot of the divine will. God made us for relationship with him that involves both listening and being listened to. How many of you do most of the talking in your relationship with God. How does that work out in real relationships in this life when you're always the one doing the talking and never the one doing the listening? Jesus' point here is that prayers are powerful, but 
prayers are powerful when you are in relationship with God, doing both the listening (laughs) and the talking. This is the relationship we're invited into. God, God speaks to us through his word. And we speak to him through our prayers. So these are the object lessons Jesus wants his disciples to walk away with. After they've seen the fruitless, prayerless, relationless, relationshiplessness of religion in the temple, right? Four things we've seen. God's the focus of our faith. We believe in a mountain-moving God. God designed prayers to be our access to his power. Powerful prayer, powerful prayer is genuine prayer. But I want to, as we conclude this morning, I want to tell you where this text really comes to life for me. Where this text comes to life for me is where I watch the disciples obey this text in the unfolding story of God. I mean, Jesus makes a point here to these 12 who've been fumbling idiots for the entire gospel of Mark, haven't they? I mean, they've not listened to anything. They are continuously distracted. They are missing the point of God. He makes this point to them over and over again, and they're, they're fumbling idiots. And God here is saying, I'm, there's nothing more powerful. We can move mountains if we want to, but it's on the third day that he proves that fully and finally, isn't it? I mean, when Jesus surrenders himself to the most irrevocable force on the planet, death itself, and three days later decides to get up, He declares victory over every power, the most powerful evil on the planet. And Jesus then sends his disciples on a mission to the entire world to to tell the world, you can have resurrection life eternally because of a resurrection of a Savior who has power over every sin in the world and even death itself. You can live forever in the glory of the forgiveness of God. You're invited to be forgiven through his death and resurrection. And these things, idiots became men who did not trust themselves did not rely on their own power but pleaded with God to do the impossible in Acts chapter 1 Jesus sends his followers on mission and they immediately begin to pray Acts chapter 1 14 with one accord they're devoting themselves to prayer the church begins with these men on their faces before God, pleading that he might work a miracle, that in the city where Jesus was crucified, just just 40 days prior, 50 days prior, that souls would be saved and a church would be started that would then send churches to the entire world. And in Acts 2.41, it says, those who received his word and were baptized were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then the disciples began to tell those people who believed in Jesus to devote themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayers, and a community was born full of people who trusted in the power of God and not themselves to save and to spread the glory of the gospel. Through prayer, they rose above persecution and preached in boldness in Acts 4. Through prayer, they saw church leaders delivered from prison, Acts 11. Through prayer, they saw missionaries sent that would change the world, Acts 13. Through prayer, they made disciples and planted churches and raised up elders to lead those churches, Acts 14. Because they believed in the power of a resurrected Savior who was building his kingdom on earth through them. I just want to, I want to close our time this morning on Easter morning with a question. How does Easter, how does a resurrected Jesus 
inform and affect your prayers this morning? How does the historical fact that Jesus rose again affect how you pray? How you desire God to use you in your life? If he has power over death and the power to move every mountain, do you pray mountain-moving prayers for the glory of God to go forth from this church to the farthest and hardest to reach places? Or has religion become to you what it had become to the religious elite in the temple? Has religion become to you just a means to a comfortable, more moral life so that you don't really need prayer? Are you religious and moral and spiritual, but ultimately godless? We're going to take a minute here at the end of this sermon, and we're going to direct our prayers to God and to the non-Christian in the room. I just want to encourage you to pray that God would help you believe in the Jesus who died for you. To the Christian, I just encourage you to pray like the resurrection happened. (laughs) I mean, if Christ is raised, all your sins are forgiven. There's nothing to fear as you draw near to God because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If Christ is raised, nothing can separate you from the love of God. If Christ is raised, then then your prayers are heard. If Christ is raised, nothing's impossible for God. If Christ is raised, your future is secure. If you're praying for healing this morning, there's a guarantee for healing this morning in this life or for all of eternity. If Christ is raised, all your suffering, sickness, and pain will one day come to an end, and those prayers will be fully and forever answered. If Christ is raised, then there's a mission to carry out in the world. If Christ is raised, the most important thing in this room is that those in this room would believe in Jesus. So let's pray like Christ has been raised. Father, help us to pray. Help us to pray. Help our unbelief. Help us to focus on God. On you. Help us not to be distracted by religious structures that just become means to some other end. But Father, may you be the end of all our means. May you be the means and the end. Father, we pray. Move mountains in this room of sin and guilt and shame. And help us to believe, we pray in Jesus' name.